the uh, good fellowship that's going on here, but let's go ahead and begin here with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, uh, see how much uh, new ground we can plow tonight. Uh, Westdale, would you open us in prayer tonight? Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Father, for uh, your watch care over us and provision and providence. We thank you, Father, for all the good things that you do for us. We thank you even for testing and the hard times. We just uh, pray that we would be drawn to you uh, in all circumstances and realize that you are our support and strength and you're our mighty fortress. And I pray, Father, that we would follow you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so last week we uh, wrapped up our section on the rapture of the church, and we were arguing uh, for a pre-tribulational rapture. <clears throat> that is the idea that uh, the church is going to be taken out of the, uh, of the world order as it is, and uh, whisked away to be with the Father, uh, we be with Christ. Uh, to go to this place being prepared for us. Okay, and so that, again, is one of the arguments that we use, John 14, uh, that we are being removed to another place. It's not that Jesus is coming down uh, to immediately establish his kingdom on earth where we are, but rather he's going to take us to another place uh, for a period of time. We looked at a passage in Revelation chapter 3. We looked at largely the whole whole argument of the Thessalonian epistles, which was written uh, to allay some of the fears uh, that uh, the readers had, that they might have missed uh, the, uh, the blessings uh, that were supposed to accrue to believers and that they might have, uh, that, they, uh, that they perhaps had missed it. And so there's this explanation of the timing of events as evidence and proof that, uh, the, that they hadn't missed anything. They are in a period of tribulation, but this is something other than, less than really, the great tribulation that is to come upon the whole earth and uh, which uh, will be precipitated uh, by the rise of Antichrist. Okay? We also suggest that there are some other arguments for uh, pre-tribulational rapture that really don't have a single verse attached to them. What, what, what are some of those? Okay, so we said that the, the marriage supper of the Lamb is, is, seems to be set up so that they've got more participants in the festivities than just Jesus and the bride. Uh, there's actually a group of, of other people. There's the virgins who attend the bride. Incidentally, there was a question last week online uh, that I didn't see until afterwards, uh, who is the virgin that is being attended by the virgins? And the virgin would be then the bride of Christ, which is the church. So, uh, so uh, they would be attended. So, so the church has attendance. And there's also the friends of the bridegroom, uh, so groomsmen. And uh, well, what, would a, what would a wedding be if there were not uh, just a, an audience, friends? That are that are gathered. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think expense will be an issue here. But uh, but <laughs> but uh, but but there seems to be, like you say here, a a a, a multiplicity of individuals that require then uh, to be there to be a group of people that accumulate while the church is in heaven. 
uh, and uh, these accumulate on earth. Okay, so that's one argument. What's another argument for pre-trib rapture? Right, yeah, and that's really what we just said, because yeah, without, without, without a rapture and a period of seven times to accumulate people, there would be nobody there for the wedding. So, so, so yes. What else? Well, one is, we sort of touched on it just here, is the place of the church during the, uh, during the tribulation. Where is the church... In Revelation 3 to 19, it's not there, right? So, it, it, and it, which seems remarkable if the whole Bible, the whole New Testament is written to churches, uh, and the first three chapters of Revelation are written to churches, and then from chapter, starting in chapter 4 all the way to chapter 19, there's just no reference to the church at all until we come to this marriage that takes place in heaven. And uh, followed by the uh, marriage supper. Where, where's the mar- where, where does the marriage take place? Where does the marriage supper take place? The marriage is in heaven. The marriage the supper. Great. Yes. So on earth, which is uh, which is uh, fits with the uh, with the uh, uh, the pattern of ancient Near Eastern Jewish weddings. Okay. So the place of the church in the in the uh, Book of Revelation. What else? What are, what were some of the other arguments here? Got two more. Somebody's got to find it here. Imminency. Imminency. There's one. So uh, the there's 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 these routine and regular repeated uh, admonitions for us to. Uh, watch, be watchful, be waiting, because we don't know when it's going to happen. Of course, if it comes, if at the end of the tribulation or at the middle of the tribulation, we could time it, count the days down, because the numbers are, are very crisp uh, from the book of Daniel and from the book of Revelation. One more. Purpose of the tribulation. Yes. Yes. So it's the, it's, the, it's the chastening of the nations and the chastening of Israel and a regathering of a remnant, uh, which is why it's called sometimes the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay, so it's, a, it's designed specifically for, uh, for, for Israel. Okay, and so we uh, talked about that and then we talked about the place of the church during the uh, tribulation. Today we're going to breach a new topic here. And again, I mentioned uh, earlier, we're, we're not actually walking through the book of Revelation and touching on everything. We simply don't have time uh, to do all that. And, and the symbolism, of course, is, is uh, you know, just a tremendous amount of symbolism and trying to assign some of these things is, is a real chore. It's, it's, real, it's a delight, I suppose. But, but it's also a, a, a complex question. So we're not actually going to work through the book of Revelation and try and detail everything. We're doing this topically. Okay, so we're talking about the coming of Christ. We're talking about the, uh, the, uh, the rise of Antichrist. 
the, the nature of the tribulation, the nature of the millennium, the nature of the eternal state, both heaven and hell, and the judgments that uh, uh, precipitate that. And so we're, we're not actually going to see everything here, and so that may be a disappointment. Uh, but uh, what we do want to stress here tonight is this detail about the Antichrist, this, this superhuman, if I can, energized by Satan, uh, who will uh, be the lead human interlocutor who is warring against our Christ. And so uh, this term antichrist, anti, uh, typically when we see this in English words means against. Um, uh, so that's, uh, and that's probably one of the normal ways we see it used, and it fits here. Because as 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says, he... Uh, this man of lawlessness who is revealed after the restrainer is taken out of the way will oppose everything and exalt himself over everything that is called God. Okay, so he is, he is radically opposed to God, and so Antichrist could mean that. He is anti-Christ. He's opposed to Christ. Um, but also this term anti can mean instead of. Okay, uh, de denoting substitution. And this is true as well because he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be an alternate deity. Okay, uh, an alternate Messiah perhaps. Okay, and, and so uh, we also find that he does counterfeit miracles. A lot of question about those miracles. Um, perhaps including... Uh, the ability even on one occasion to raise himself from the dead. There's some question even there. He was, he was gravely wounded to the point of death. The question whether he died is, is perhaps the one that uh, I'll, I'll let you exegetes figure that out. Nonetheless, he was gravely wounded uh, to the point of no recovery and makes a miraculous recovery, uh, which actually, again, raises his stock even further, uh, his ability to overcome this, uh, this injury. I mean, we watched a guy play baseball last night, and we're just amazed that a guy pitches 14 pitches on a broken leg, and, you know, his stock just goes up in our mind. But, but this, this, is, this, this Antichrist is actually going to bring himself back from, from the dead or from the, from the, the precipice of death. And he's, his stock is just going to just go out through the roof uh, for that reason. So he, he sets himself up as an alternative to God. And so anti uh, can mean instead of or substitution. So he can be the replacement of Christ. Okay? Either one works. It's hard to know which one is in view. Uh, but uh, both of them actually work. I mean, I, I believe that words mean one thing in Scripture. They don't mean two things, but both of these work, and the Scriptures are not explicit as to which one is to be intended. So references to the Antichrist in Scripture are in clusters. Um, John uh, uses the term Antichrist. He's the only one who actually uses the term Antichrist. All the other authors use different terms. Uh, he's often probably the most common name for him is the beast in, uh, in Revelation. He's also called by Paul the man of lawlessness, the man of sin. Uh, Daniel calls him the little horn. Uh, but this term Antichrist only appears in John's letters. And uh, in all but one of the occasions 
uh, this term antichrist is actually used of regular people who are opposed to Christ. There's only one occasion where the antichrist is in view, but all of these references to other antichrists have reference to this one exemplar, this archetypal uh, uh, antichrist who is going to come in the last days. So for instance, in 1 John 2.18, Dear children, this is the last hour, and you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. But even now, many Antichrists have come. Okay? So many people who, have oppo- are, who oppose Christ or who, uh, who, who push themselves as an alternate to Christ are with, among you. So there are these many little Antichrists who are patterned after the great Antichrist. And this is how we know it's the last hour, he says. Okay, 1 John 4, 3, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has, has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. This is, this is, the, this is the kind of thing Antichrist does, and uh, it's done routinely in this world. And you've heard that he is coming, but really this, this the the sentiment expressed by Antichrist is really with us throughout the whole church age, okay? And so there have been and continue to be many historical individuals who may be described as Antichrists or Antichristian. These are all Antichristian with reference to a single super Antichrist whose world dominance is holy future. Uh, it's, you know, Luther, of course, is famous for calling the Pope uh, the Antichrist. And there's a sense in which he's validated in doing that by the Apostle John, right? Uh, because, uh, in fact, what, is, what does the Pope call himself that leads us to think that he views himself as an alternative to Christ? He is the vicar of Christ. So he's, he is the stand-in for Jesus Christ on earth. He is the, he's the, that's the same word we get the term vicarious atonement, right? Jesus was in our place on the cross. Well, the Pope is called the vicar of Christ. He's in Christ's place on earth. So he represents personally, in a unique way, Jesus Christ on earth. And that makes him, uh, in Luther's understanding, antichrist. Because he, not, not so much because he opposes Christ, but because he puts himself in the place of Christ, uh, which is the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, So it's possible for us to uh, talk about individuals as anti-Christian, but we we shouldn't imagine that we have identified the Antichrist uh, just because we find some particularly bad people in the world, whether that be the Pope, whether that be Hitler, whether... you know, whoever the figure may be, uh, we can't identify any of these as the Antichrist, uh, no matter how opposed they are to Christ, until they actually are divulged to be Antichrist in the last day. Okay? So other New Testament designations for the Antichrist uh, as a single, identifiable, personal, eschatological arch-opponent of Jesus Christ include, we say here, the beast, 
Uh, Revelation 13, longer discussion there. The man of lawlessness in this section we looked here in 2 Thessalonians. He's called the abomination of desolations. A few years ago I was going through this and I said the abomination of, of desolation. It, it was a slip of the tongue, <laughs> but, but it, uh, it brought the house down. But uh, <laughs> it's the abomination of desolations here that Mark uh, refers to here. The Old Testament also speaks of this arch enemy of God, describing him in Daniel 7 as the little horn and the coming prince, the willful king and the worthless shepherd. And so these are uh, terms that are assigned to this, this super enemy of God. Okay, so let's, let's take a look at some of these. Uh, there's a few clusters of discussions of uh, this, uh, this Antichrist. We've got one here in 2 Thessalonians, one in Daniel 7, one in Revelation 13. Uh, those are probably the three big sections uh, that talk about the Antichrist, although there's a smattering of other uh, discussions as well. i sort of find them all here in my uh, Bible here so I can flip back and forth without wandering through the... Okay, so... Uh, we find here uh, that this, this man is described in Daniel 7 as the quintessential man, right? The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind. He was lying on his bed. He wrote them down. He looked, and before him were four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea, four great beasts, each different from the other, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion, wings of an eagle. Uh, there came before a second beast, like a bear. Third, uh, there was another beast that looked like a leopard. And then there was a fourth beast, the most terrifying and frightening of all, very powerful, verse 7. It had large iron teeth, probably has reference to do then with the second dream he has of this, uh, of this, uh, large, uh, this large idol, idol with, uh, made up of four different materials, and, and there's at the bottom are the legs and, of iron that break into ten. Okay, so it had large iron teeth, perhaps, uh, has, has suggests here uh, its, its origin here. It crushes and devours its victims, tramples underfoot whatever is left. It was different than all the former beasts. It had ten horns. We'll talk a little bit about those ten horns in a bit here. But while I was thinking about these horns... There before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among the ten. Three of the first horns were uprooted. It had eyes of a man, a mouth that boast, spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, so on and so forth. And so we find that these are set against uh, one another. So he's a, uh, he's a great orator. His mouth utters great boasts. Revelation 13 talks about this beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on his horns. Each head was a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave this beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a head fatal wound, but that was healed. And the whole world was astonished, followed the beast. 
Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and said, Who's like the beast? Who can make war against him? And he utters proud words and blasphemies and exercises authority for 42 months, blasphemes God, slanders his name and dwelling place, and has given power to make war against all of the saints over every tribe, people, language, and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth. Worship him and take his name. Of course, this is where they receive his mark in order to do commerce and such. Okay, so he's a great orator. He, he utters great boasts, proud words, and he's evidently very charismatic. People just flock to him. He'll be a military genius who is like the beast, who is able to wage war against him. Nobody. He's, he's good. He's good. He's also a political genius. Uh, we find elsewhere here, particularly in Daniel 9, uh, that what gives him his initial launch into his meteoric rise to power is his apparent solution of the Jewish problem. He's able to strike a treaty with the people of Israel and the nations around, solving this centuries-old problem between the, uh, between the Arab nations, the Muslim nations, and and Israel. In fact, it actually includes the resumption of the Israelite uh, temple system. Okay, I, it's amazing to think that this could possibly happen because what's what's on the, what's on the uh, the rock there now? Yeah, I'll, yeah, we've got the Dome of the Rock, as it's sometimes called here, and it's a uh, really. It's a really spectacular building. You can go into it, and you can see the rock. You know, there's, there's, it's the, uh, the, uh, it's, it's interesting because you, you go to Israel. There's, there's a lot of earthquakes that take place in that part of the world, um, and there are two Muslim mosques that are pretty much right across the way from each other. There's Al Aqsa, which is kind of a it's it's not it's not all that spectacular looking, and then there's the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is just really spectacular, very quite beautiful, the gold uh, dome. But it's Al Aqsa that's actually the the sacred place. Uh, but it's 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 built off to the side, and uh, it's been destroyed five times by massive earthquakes in Israel. But the Dome of the Rock never budges because the bedrock actually comes close to the surface there, and actually. It actually emerges, and uh, it, is, it is likely that it is that, is that emerging section of the bedrock that just sort of juts out there. It's probably where the, uh, uh, where the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant rested. Um, and uh, so, so it, it, it's, it's, it's firm. That, that, that building never goes anywhere. But <laughs> here, that's, that's the irony of it. There's going to be a rebuilt temple at the right place, right dimensions, and it's going to be right there, and there's going to be the, the temple system and all of the cultists is all going to be running again, and you wonder, how in the world is that going to happen? But it is, and that's what vaults uh, the, the, the Antichrist to his, to his place of, of, of intrigue here. So he's a political genius. 
And he has uh, universal charisma. The whole earth is astonished, amazed, follows after him. And they uh, worship the dragon who gave the authority to the beast. Of course, the dragon here, we, we find here in Revelation, that is, 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 is Satan himself. So he's a quintessential man, great orator, military genius, political genius, charismatic guy. He's also morally destitute, as we've seen. Uh, we've seen in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the name that Paul uses for him twice is that he is the man of lawlessness. He knows no restraint. Uh, he instead is a law unto himself. Daniel 11 describes him as doing whatever he pleases, exalting and magnifying himself above every god. So, uh, so, he displayed, so he's, he's the one who writes his own moral code because there's no one above him to write it for him. He'll show no regard for the gods of his fathers, for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Okay. And if that doesn't make him a blasphemer, then we are uh, reminded that he speaks monstrous things against the God of God and takes upon himself names that are blasphemous in nature, uh, those that, that make a mockery of or insult uh, the Christian God. So where does he come from? Well, we think he must, ethnically speaking, be a Jew because uh, he, is, he is described early on as showing regard for the Elohim of his fathers, probably a reference to his Jewish lineage. This is why he strikes this, this uh, treaty with the Jewish people uh, and why they trust him, probably because he's one of them. Now, he's obviously not going to be a faithful Jew. Uh, nonetheless, there's this ethnic connection that perhaps is part of the reason why he's respected by the Jewish people. Um, and, uh, and so that probably explains why they embrace him. So he's probably a Jew. He, he owns early on the same God as they. Nationally and geographically, he emerges from the ashes of the Roman Empire. So he emerges out of the fourth beast, uh, which is described in the next vision, this, this idol that's built, as the feet of iron, okay, uh, with ten toes, okay. Uh, so we have this, this number ten that shows up multiple times. He's in this ten toes. He's the, he, so he's one of these, he emerges from the feet of this uh, of this, this idol. He also is one of ten horns that is associated with this fourth beast. Okay, and so he seems to emerge then from the last great world empire described by Daniel. Remember, we've got Babylon, followed by Persia, followed by Greece, followed by Rome. And we find that this Antichrist emerges from the splinters and remnants of the Roman Empire. Now, that doesn't necessarily give us a lot. There have been some who have assumed, okay, so the Roman Empire is basically a European empire, and therefore he must be European. I'm not sure that necessarily follows, because the Roman Empire was way bigger than Europe. Uh, 
much of Africa, much of Asia, uh, of course, all, all of the Middle East, uh, in addition to uh, Europe, was under Roman domination. So uh, trying to identify where he comes from is pretty difficult uh, because that, that's a rather large block of land here. Probably means he's not coming from Australia or China, but, but beyond that, we can't, we can't say a whole lot more than that. So he comes somehow out of the, the ashes of the Roman Empire. Uh, Romans 9 identifies him as the prince of the people who cut off Messiah. So the people who cut off Messiah then uh, are the Romans. And so he would be part of this Roman coalition. Uh, there's these, these, these ten toes and these ten horns, uh, probably to be equated with uh, uh, the, this, this Roman coalition that sort of develops after uh, Rome uh, ceases to be this singular idea. There's, there was a, I remember, I'm getting old, I guess, uh, but I remember when the uh, European Union started to sort of flex its muscles and started to churn a little bit, and there was this idea that okay, this this is it. This is these are the these are the ten toes. These are the ten horns, and uh, and excitement grew until they got ten of them, and then they got eleven and twelve, and and now there's twenty-seven. Actually, your your notes say twenty-nine. I forgot to update that after Brexit. So. There's actually 27 now, so it says 29 in your notes. It should say 27. Um, so if you're if you're looking that up, <coughs> we okay. always have some riff that we can write a book. Was that? We always have some guy in the Christian community writing books, connecting the dots, and telling yeah. everybody this is going to be it. Yeah, yeah, it's, and so I, re, I re, you know, back back in those days, that that was it was you know, I'm not sure when the uh, European Union began, but it really didn't begin to gained traction until I think the 80s and there was real excitement that this this is it this is that the, the Antichrist is coming until until we went past 10 now there's 27 so Antichrist may not be from Europe at all but morally he's the product of satanic influence it's the be the, the the dragon that gives his authority and power and to him so standing behind the Antichrist is an even greater power uh, even than this worldwide emperor, and that's Satan himself. Okay? And his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, including uh, power and signs and wonders. So he's able to at least mimic uh, what Christ does uh, did uh, in terms of miracles. Of course, miracles were there to, uh, to, to validate the credentials of the Messiah. And so this Antichrist is able to come up with his own. Now, it's hard to know whether we're talking sleight of hand here or whether he's actually capable of genuine miracles. Um, but uh, it's certainly possible that uh, uh, Satan, empowered, uh, enabled by God, allowed by the permitted guy, by God uh, to flex his muscles, may be capable of these miracles as well. Okay, but ultimately, uh, even behind the powers there, you know, this grand human arch opponent of Jesus Christ, the human, there and and there's there's Satan, the arch opponent of God, uh, but behind it all. 
orchestrating the whole thing is God himself. So, so nothing is happening that God is just sort of trying to maneuver and trying to figure out what's going on. He's actually telling us this is going to happen this way because he actually planned it this way. In fact, it's, it's surprising the number of times where we find that God himself is the mastermind behind it all. We, we kind of don't expect that because we don't want to see God as having anything to do with evil, uh, orchestrating evil, or, or, or empowering evil beings. And yet, we do want God to be behind it all. <laughs> because if he's not, uh, then we've actually got this, this rogue power out there uh, that uh, could end up toppling God. And so we find on th at least three occasions here, Revel uh, Zechariah eleven sixteen. I am going to raise up this worthless shepherd. Okay? God's ultimately responsible for the rising and falling of this Antichrist. The lamb breaks the seal, which leads to the rise of Antichrist. And Revelation 17, one of the more astonishing statements here is that it's by divine impetus that kings surrender their authority to Antichrist. It sort of reminds you of, of God... Uh, uh, causing David to number the people and then punishing him for it. You've got the same kind of language here that's used of Antichrist. And it, it, is a, it is a fascinating thing as you look through the scripture that some of the most uh, horrific assaults on God are described as being done with divine permission. Okay? We've got, we've got the, uh, the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God announces at the beginning, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and I'm going to actually render certain the things that are going to happen. You know, this, this, this terrible assault against the people of God. Uh, we've got uh, uh, the, the crucifixion, which is by the hand of God that it, that it unfolds the way it does. And here we have the Antichrist, this great enemy of God. And yet God stands behind it all. So, so don't imagine that God's losing control because it's easy to think in those terms as we go through Revelation because things get pretty wild and wicked, okay? And not in the colloquial sense of the term, right? It, really wild and really wicked, evil. Um, and so, but, but God stands behind it all. It's, he's, he, is, he is orchestrating all of this to his own ends. Okay? Questions up till this point? Okay, so let's trace the career of Antichrist. His rise is precipitated by, remember we said last week, by the removal of this restrainer that will continue to restrain until it is taken away and then the man of lawlessness will be set free here. Okay, so, so, uh, so then the lawless one will be revealed because the restrainer will stop restraining. There's some debate as to what the restrainer is. We suggested that there's at least a likelihood that this is the Holy Spirit operating through the, the, the church collective that is going to be removed uh, through the rapture. And that hole, that moral vacuum that's going to occur there is going to be the perfect occasion then for, uh, for Antichrist to rise to power. Technically, the tribulation doesn't start until 
Antichrist strikes this treaty with Israel. Um, now, there's not much reason to think that it's going to be a, a long gap of time between the rapture and this treaty, but there's at least a window there. Uh, in fact, I, I kind of like that window there because it allows uh, for the, the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, like I say, there is no sign of the rapture. We don't have to see the temple rebuilt in order for the rapture to take place. There is actually, there actually is some time built in here, uh, that's, uh, and uh, so it could be uh, that we have a period of time between the rapture and uh, the beginning of this tribulation. It's hard to say. So he vaults then into the political scene by making this seven-year treaty with the Jews, again, apparently uh, signing, uh, solving this generations-old Jewish-Arab conflict in the Middle East, uh, even concerning the temple. So he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, a treaty that allows for the resumption of the Jewish sacrificial system, uh, which, if nothing else, certainly requires a temple. And, and all of the trappings that are associated with it. You know, we, we know from the Old Testament that you just don't do sacrifices willy-nilly. You have to follow the rules. And so you can imagine uh, that when the Jews finally get their opportunity to reinstate some of these things, it's going to be done right. And, uh, and, and uh, so it does appear that he allows for that all uh, to, to develop. Uh, and then he re receives the power, uh, receives the, uh, uh, the support of the Roman Confederacy. So he rises out of these ten toes, these ten horns, and apparently is able to, uh, uh, is able to uh, uh, gain their support first. And then uh, he wages war against the great army of the north. Uh, again, there's question as to what this may be. Uh, there's a, there's a number of, of names that suggest perhaps there might be some, some, um, some Russian uh, kind of, uh, of influence here. But again, there's, we're, we're speculating pretty broadly here. But uh, uh, perhaps a Russian uh, force, a Russian power. Uh, we've, we've often thought that over the years in, in, our, in the world we live in because, you know, the Cold War, Russia was the great superpower. Um, it, it may be that we're sort of inventing that because that seems to be the power that's there. Uh, it may be another superpower in the north other than Russia, but at least it's a possibility that's out there. Okay, So he defeats this king of uh, the north and leaves him the undisputed political leader of the world. Now, uh, at first, it doesn't look like he's going to fare very well against this king of the north because we find in Daniel 11 that this king of the north uh, is on his way to world domination, meets the Antichrist, crushes him and leaves him in the dust, goes on to Africa uh, where he intends to assert his power there, uh, but then there's this rumor in the north, okay, right? There's this, this rumor that Antichrist wasn't defeated. He didn't die. Inconceivable, right? And so, um, and so there's these rumors in the east and the north of Antichrist's miraculous healing from this mortal wound, and this will draw the king of the north back out of Africa to his doom, 
in the land of Palestine. This is known as the Battle of Gog and Magog, not to be confused with Armageddon, even though they're not too far from each other, geographically speaking. Okay? So, uh, so after he defeats this, this powerful king of the north, uh, then he's the undisputed king of the world, uh, which allows him then to flex his muscles in ways he previously couldn't because he had to keep these coalitions going in order to keep his power balanced and such. Now he doesn't need that anymore. He's the undisputed king of the world. And so he breaks his treaty with, his, with the Jews, reveals his true colors here as to who he is. So in the middle of the week, after 1260 days, in the middle of this week of, of, of years, this seven-year period, he will put a stop to sacrifices and the grain offering. Uh, so the, uh, uh, this three and a half years of, of Jewish uh, uh, sacrifice is going to come to an end uh, because the, the, uh, the Antichrist will no longer allow it. He will also then kill God's two witnesses. Okay, question was asked, are we going to talk about the witnesses? Yeah, yeah kind of. Uh, we're not really going to describe... Uh, we're, not, we're gonna, not going to deal with them in detail, except to note uh, that these two witnesses emerge. Uh, there is some suggestion because of some of the language that these might be uh, historical figures, uh, Old Testament characters. Some have suggested that it could be Moses and Elijah or perhaps Enoch. Um, uh, but uh, certainly one is called Elijah, but probably because he comes in the power of Elijah. John the Baptist, of course, was called uh, Elijah as well. So uh, Elijah is sort of identified in the Bible as the quintessential prophet. Uh, so one may be Elijah, and of course it makes sense because he dies. Uh, if in fact this was a historical figure that is Elijah, Elijah never died, so uh, this actually, so he doesn't have to die twice. Um, so it could possibly be Elijah. Uh, the, uh, the, other, the other witness is, is less there's less, there's less unanimity on him. Perhaps Moses, one of the major figures in the Old Testament, also appears at the, at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ together with Elijah. Another option is Enoch because he's the other guy uh, in the Old Testament who doesn't die. So perhaps that, that vaults him up into contention here. We're, we're, we, we don't know who the two witnesses are. Uh, but apparently they are appointed by God to bear witness to the people of Israel, and they, they witness uh, to the true Christ with tremendous success, uh, and in fact 144,000 Jews are converted under their ministry, and these 144,000 are then sealed, right? So they're protected through the tribulation as emissaries of God uh, to, to the rest of the world, uh, bearing the gospel and witnessing to the uh, rest of the world through this, this terrible period of, of seven years. And so we find that a great army of people uh, convert during this period, even in the midst of all the carnage that is going on. Okay, but uh, but uh, the Antichrist is responsible for killing these two witnesses. He kills them, leaves them to die and lay in the street until uh, by, uh, by, God's, uh, uh, by God's grace he, he raises them up and takes them up into heaven. 
He also destroys the harlot church that he had previously used to gain political power. Historically, again, this has been identified as Roman Catholicism. I don't know that there's any necessary connection here, but it's at least a possibility. Apparently, there's some sort of, of church, uh, some sort of religious organization, uh, some world religious organization that, uh, that assists the uh, Antichrist in coming to power. Uh, some have suggested over the years, uh, it, rather than Roman Catholic Church, maybe it's the World Council of Churches or something of that nature. Um, but there's this coalition, this religious coalition that gives their support uh, to this uh, Antichrist, but he breaks even their support uh, afterwards. So this harlot church that uh, the Antichrist previously used to gain political clout, uh, he actually abandons there in chapter 17. And then... Having broken faith with the Jews and their religion, having broken faith with this harlot church, he's now able to establish himself as the object of worship. Okay? And so in 2 Thessalonians 2, he takes his seat in the temple of God and displays himself as God. Okay? So worship me, as the, uh, is, is what he says. Uh, after uh, Daniel, Daniel 12, after the Jewish sacrifice is abolished, this abomination of desolation. Uh, so it, it connected here uh, to this historical incident that's described in the Maccabees, uh, where a pig is sacrificed on the on the on on the uh, on the altar there, and it's called an abomination. Here, this is described as the the greater abomination, okay? So here is a person, this man who, uh, who, who vaults himself against God. He displays himself as God in the temple and sets himself up in the holy place for 1,290 days. So the second half of the tribulation, the only religious system that is left is the beast. Worship the beast, and the false prophet is basically his chief, you know, his high priest, if I could, if I could, his, his, his representative, his religious representative for the, for the world. Um, Antichrist, okay, there it is, the false prophet, will design an image of the Antichrist that highlights his supernatural powers and capital authority to enforce Antichrist worship. You have to uh, worship him under pain of death. And then he begins his persecutions. Uh, specifically of Israel. Israel is persecuted 1,260 days, and if they were not whisked away under the protecting hand of God into the wilderness, they would have been wiped out. Okay? And so there's a time of great tribulation, and uh, the Israelite people suffer unmercifully. Okay? And then he reaches the pinnacle of world denomination, absolute military power, absolute religious authority, absolute economic power, and it all comes to a sudden climactic end uh, when he decides, okay, we are going to wipe out these Jews from the face of the earth once and for all. God's people are going to be removed, and it doesn't end well, right? So his end comes. God's seventh bold judgment uh, will destroy Antichrist's capital, which is described here as Babylon, 
could be the geographic Babylon that is, I believe, uh, in Iraq uh, presently. It's, it, the, the, the site of Babylon is largely abandoned, um, um, but uh, it's possible that he'll rebuild that. Others have suggested that perhaps Rome uh, would be the, the capital. I think perhaps Babylon proper is the more likely. Uh, it's also, it, of course, that harks back to the earlier Babel, right? Uh, that uh, was, a, was an attempt to overthrow God or to set up a, an alternate system of worship uh, that would rival God uh, back, in, in, you know, back in Genesis chapter 10, right? Um, and so, so probably it, it is that same Babel or Babylon and probably that same geographic location. Okay, but uh, God's seventh bold judgment is going to unilaterally and immediately destroy the capital city uh, because he, because God can and he enjoys it, right? And so there's this description here of it in detail in Revelation 16 and 18. Antichrist is ticked. All the blame is going to be laid upon the Jewish people. And so he's going to attack Jerusalem and Christ will come to their aid. So in Revelation 19, I saw this beast and the kings of the earth and their armies all assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Okay, And there's a long description of this in Zechariah uh, where the, the nations of the world have, have Jerusalem completely surrounded the entire remnant of the Jews have been clustered here. They've all returned from the corners of the world. They're clustered here. And it looks like they're about to be completely squashed. And then, and then Christ appears right, and on, the, uh, on the Mount of Olives just from where he went up uh, back uh, at, the, uh, at the ascension of Jesus Christ. He's going to come, he's going to come back to the same spot in the same body, same person, only here he's going to come as a, as, a, as a conquering warrior. They will look upon him on whom they have pierced and they will weep. And there will be a mass conversion of these Jews uh, and uh, he will gather them together and with the sword of his mouth, he's going to completely wipe out the armies of Antichrist. I've got, I've got sort of got a picture of the... Uh, of the cinematic version of, of, of Lord of the Rings here, where it's just sort of, just sort of, they just sort of go to, I don't know how it's going to look, probably be better than that, but, uh, but uh, that's a picture I have, okay? And Christ will slay the Antichrist in his coming in power and glory, that lawless one. The Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And according to Isaiah 14, Antichrist will have no tomb at all, uh, but will instead be placed bodily into the lake of fire as the first inhabitant thereof. Okay, so he's the very first one who enters. Uh, so Revelation 19, the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who had performed signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burn, burns with brimstone. And uh, we have a brief glimpse of him in Revelation 20 when the rest of the damned are uh, sent to join him, and he is described as still there. And uh, 
there he will remain forever. Okay, so this is the Antichrist uh, that uh, we find described uh, variously in the Christian scriptures. Any questions that you have on this figure? I don't know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could probably go through a lot of figures and say, could he? Could he poss possibly? Now, no. <laughs> but but like I say, I, I think it's I think it's quite conceivable that since Satan doesn't know any more than you and I, when these things are going to start rolling. Uh, that perhaps he has a stream of people sort of lined up for the post, uh, if in fact God should give him the opportunity to uh, the green light to go ahead and empower someone. It, so, it, so it's at least possible that some of the figures we've sort of looked at. I wonder if he's the Antichrist. Perhaps in in Satan's preparation, these are the people he. Was, was intending, if the opportunity came, to be Antichrist. And, of course, uh, there was no opportunity. And so it's possible that he's always got somebody in preparation. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting thought. It is, but without complete law, lawlessness of him, they're not half that bad. I right. Mean, bad is bad. Right. But right. Yeah, it's re it's re yeah. You really don't know who it is until the restraints are removed, and and he's able to assert himself. Does the uh, uh, scripture allow for the possibility that the Antichrist is a woman? Doesn't seem to, because uh, he, he he's described as having no regard for women. Uh, so it it seems it seems like. He's a he's a man who and, and there's some question as to what he means by that. You know, is he abusive of women or is he is he a homosexual? Or, or you know, it's it, it's hard to know exactly what is meant by that. But he seems to be a man based on those descriptions. I always thought it just meant he was so obsessed with power and that he didn't have time for women. I don't even care. It's not even right. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about that phrase as to what it means. Does he does he not care about women? Does he abuse women? Does he treat men as women? I don't know, uh, but but it does seem that he's a man. That that, that description there. Have you ever been on a tour of the Holy Land? I've been to yes, I've been there. So you've got to, you've been able to walk on the Mount of Olives. Yeah. That's what I always wanted to do. Yeah, there are. <laughs> it, it it is yeah. There, there's there's a lot of value in going to the uh, Holy Land. There there's sort of the existential value of walking where Jesus walked. But probably the better thing is is the hermeneutical assistance that you get from going there. You 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 understand. Oh, this is why they go up, and this is why they could see the armies coming five days away, because you you you, you see some of the contours of the land and how it how it how it lays and where the cities are and, and how they're fortified. And you get, you get a little bit of a sense as to what's going on. And when it says that, you know, J 
Jesus went from Galilee to Jerusalem, how long did that take? How far was it? You, you get, a, you get a, a real nice feel for that. So that's, that's probably the, the most practical value of a trip like that. But, but there is that existential value of you know, going to, this is, this is where it all happened, and this is where it's all going to happen. And so it is, it is interesting. And do they know which, where Calvary was? Like, do they know which hill was the hill? They have some ideas. There's, and, and they, and the, uh, and they, there's, there's actually a, a, a Catholic uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and there's also a Protestant one. There's a, the Garden Tomb, as it's sometimes called. Actually, the, the Protestant Garden Tomb is almost certainly not the right place. <laughs> It's it's almost certainly the Catholic one, uh, but you know it's 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 nicer to go to the one. It it like I say, it's existentially nicer to go to the Garden Tomb. It's such a peaceful place, and you'd like to think that it was a place like this. But almost certainly the uh, Catholic location is the right one. <laughs> but you don't really lo- you don't really enjoy going to some of those Catholic locations just laced with so much, you know, all all the trinkets and and all the all the, it it it's it's sort of depressing. <laughs> you oh, sort of go in, see it, and go out. <laughs> Even though they probably have the right, many of the right places, because they've those those kinds of things wouldn't have been forgotten, and they've been there from from very early on. So, but yeah, we went off the topic here. Usually it's in a context, but, but. In a, in a kind, I mean, in a, like, in, you know, I mean, I don't know the, uh, I know that when you have a commentary, you'll have that person's outline and that, and, and is there kind of a hint that you would go by that, that something's going to come up? Because it just seems like they just come up in odd places. The prophecies of the millennial kingdom, prophecies of the great tribulation. I'm not sure that I would say that that's true. I mean, it, there there usually is an argument that's that's laid out in each of the books, and there there's an occasion for those discussions. I mean, I, I will say that the the prophets are are some of the more difficult material to read, and so sometimes the historical and the prophetic are are intertwined together in such a way that it's it's hard to keep some things straight but usually there's a context that allows you to know that yeah, something has got a logical is coming
Well, right, but it seems like a lot of, like, like Obadiah or Isaiah, they'll go through, you know, they'll, they'll, the, 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 the woe against the Moabites and the Edomites and, and so on and so forth. And so each one sort of has that feel to it. There's a judgment, and this is how it's going to end. And then you go to the next one. This is how it's going to end, and then you go to the next one. So, so, so sometimes I think it perhaps feels that way, but usually there's an organizational structure that lets you at least get a, get a sense that that's coming. But sometimes it's a little harder to see. But you're right, the, uh, the, the, the prophets are something of a labyrinth, but I think they're well worth exploring. I think they're the, the great neglected section of Scripture, really. Okay, well, that exhausts our time. We'll see you next week, and we'll talk through uh, the tribulation. Perhaps get a start on the millennium. More happy, a happier topic. <laughs> One question. Mm -hmm.